Well, hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Dr. Joe Galati podcast, broadcasting high above the Texas Medical Center in Houston, purveyor of all things related to the liver, health and wellness, nutrition, food and cooking, and all-around doctor banter and witty repartee with our experts that visit us. Our website is drjoegalati.com. If you'd like to send me a note, subscribe to our newsletter, or even see me as a patient. If you want to call and be part of the program, dial us at 888-438-9431. And now, on with the podcast. Today's podcast, as always, is sponsored by Liver Specialists of Texas, serving Houston and all of Texas, and now with telemedicine options the entire country, since 1994, providing expert care in all facets of liver disease, including cirrhosis, viral hepatitis, fatty liver, alcohol-related liver disease, liver transplantation, and digestive disorders. Contact us by going to texasliver.com or calling our great staff at 713-794-0700. So thanks very much for listening to this installment of our podcast, the Dr. Joe Galati podcast. I'm Dr. Joe Galati. And, you know, for those that are regular listeners of the podcast. Typically what we do is we take the broadcast from our weekly program, Your Health First, which airs on the iHeart Radio Network every Sunday evening at 7 p.m. Central Time, and we either air the entire program, the entire hour, or if we have one particular segment or expert that's on the program. We feature that person or that topic in the podcast. But many of you have been writing to me saying, number one, we'd like a little bit of a longer format podcast. Sometimes 20 minutes is okay, but we'd like it a little bit longer. The second thing is people are writing to say, we'd like to hear you a little bit more with your opinion, diving into a little bit more detail on some of the subjects. And so I've been wanting to do this for a couple of months, and it just so happens that today, this week, is is the right time for me to do it. Now, what we have on this podcast today, a couple of weeks ago, I did a, it's about a 40-minute interview with Jackie DeAngelis from Fox Business Network. And as many of you may have known, Jackie, earlier last year, I believe, was diagnosed with breast cancer around the age of 40, 41 years old. And of course, at any age, it's a devastating diagnosis, and then you have to get into the treatment, and there's all sorts of an an emotional roller coaster. So Jackie was very kind to spend a uh, good amount of time explaining and outlining her journey with breast cancer. It turned out that she elected to undergo a bilateral mastectomy, and she talks about that. But it's a, it's a really a very revealing interview on her part, and trying to edit it down to 20 minutes or 30 minutes, I really didn't feel was uh, fair to the content and those that are listening that either are uh, followers of of Jackie DeAngelis on TV and like what she does or breast cancer. And so I elected that we're going to post the entire interview uncut and uh, have all of you listen and certainly be inspired by her story. Now, from a programming standpoint, the interview that we had with Jackie DeAngelis aired on Sirius XM Channel 129, which is the Catholic channel. Now, once a month, I do a special program on the Catholic channel, 
And what we do is we try to bridge health and wellness with faith. And so during the program and interview, you will hear me make some references to biblical quotes tying together the faith element to health and wellness and our own personal journey. So if you hear that, you may say, now, wait a second, what is Dr. Joe Galati doing quoting from the Bible or quoting Scripture? Well, it has to do that this particular program was aired originally, last week or so, on the Catholic Channel. For my standpoint, a little bit of background story on breast cancer and my own experience. So my mother, at the age of 47, I actually had to calculate how old was my mother when she was first diagnosed with breast cancer. And she was 47 years old. Now, when you're a teenager and your mom has breast cancer, you sort of look at mom as being an older woman, but certainly 47 is by no means an old woman. But again, in the eyes of a young boy, uh, you you sort of take on that attitude. And I remember the, the duress that my father was under, especially the night before surgery. Back then, of course, you went into the hospital one or two days before the surgery, and she knew she was going to have to get a mastectomy. And back then, the surgical technology, the surgical techniques were not as efficient as they are today with the microinvasive surgery. The instruments are smaller. The incisions are smaller. Back then, literally the entire breast was taken off. Muscle under the chest wall was taken off, creating a fair amount of deformity to the chest wall, and she had to have her axilla, her her armpit, uh, opened up and dissected looking for lymph nodes. So at the end of surgery, this was a really disfiguring surgery that really, really lingered with my mother her entire life. Now, the good news is, A, she survived the breast cancer. Number two, when she was in her later 60s, she had breast cancer on the other side, the only remaining breast she had. And again, the technology improves that she went for a lump- lumpectomy and some local radiation therapy, and she survived that breast cancer episode and had no further complications. Now, her sister, my Aunt Penny, who was her youngest sister, a marvelous woman, she was diagnosed with breast cancer probably in her mid, mid-50s, mid mid to later 50s, and she had a bit of a protracted course, and she ultimately died from metastatic breast cancer, which was just uh, really a horrible loss, and she really suffered through it. So anytime I am talking about breast cancer, talking to a patient about breast cancer, or talking on the radio, I, uh, I, I, I feel as if that I have firsthand knowledge, and I feel very comfortable, but I do want to get that story out any opportunity I can, so I was happy Jackie DeAngelis was able to come and share her story. Now, um, let's see. What else have I been up to? Well, uh, let's see. It was about a week and a half ago. I went to Las Vegas. I was invited to speak at a national sales meeting for a major pharmaceutical company, and they did not want me to talk about liver disease per se. I was not going to get up there and talk about research and have graphs and tables and all sorts of boring slides. What they wanted me to do was to motivate their sales staff, not so much to go out and sell more drugs and increase the number of prescriptions. It really is about disease awareness liver disease awareness. 
And the company and the leaders of the, uh, of, of the firm felt that I was able to communicate that to them, to about 1,000 people in this ballroom at uh, the Aria. Very nice, uh, uh, very nice casino. But it really was a thrill to be able to speak to a relatively large audience like that and have a good 20, 25 minutes to air out my discussion. And the, the theme of what I spoke about, and it's very relevant to the lay public, to all of you listening. And let's face it, you're probably listening to me and or the message I have because you are interested in health and wellness. You're interested in medicine. You're interested in how can I stay healthy and not get sick, not succumb to chronic disease, cancer, diabetes, heart disease. And so I think you'll understand what I am going to say. And, um, you know, the, the I don't want to say it's a slogan, but the theme of the meeting was the mission, or my mission, and it's your mission too, is to make visible the invisible. Let me say that again. It is to make visible the invisible. Now, being a hepatologist, a liver disease specialist, we have to deal with liver disease basically being swept under the rug. There are fellow physicians that see a patient with liver disease, and it may be related to alcohol, or it may be related to fatty liver, or some other disease that we take care of, and the patient may not look bad. They may not feel bad. They may not have any outward symptoms or a complaint. Maybe the doctor is seeing some abnormal liver chemistries or an abnormal ultrasound. And the first thing you say is, hey, Bob, how do you feel? And they may say, well, I I feel pretty okay. All right, well, let's just watch it. Let's just watch it. And what happens is watching it turns into the plan of care for not a month, six months, a year, that it, it watching it turns into the permanent plan. We're just watching it until they come and see me, and I have to tell them that they have cirrhosis or they have liver cancer or they need a liver transplant. And I see this day after day after day after day. And so I am sure there are people out there that may have some early-stage heart disease early stage lung disease, and the physicians are not aggressively intervening and managing the disease. They're not really taking the time to sit down with the patient to say, now look, we have to do X so that Y does not happen. We need to make sure you lose weight so that your heart disease does not get better, or you need to go on a particular therapy to lower your cholesterol so that you don't have a heart attack. And so it was very, very satisfying. The response from the company and the sales force and the employees was just outstanding with this idea of make visible what is invisible. And part of this is denial on, on a patient standpoint. They don't quite want to fess up that their blood pressure is 200 over 90. It's staring you right in the eye on your blood pressure cuff. It says 200 over 90. It's visible. You choose to make it invisible. The result of that is chronic disease and complications. And so uh, for, for now, for the purpose of this podcast, for the purpose of this discussion, think in your own life, in your own health and wellness. Are there things that you really do see, things that you notice, 
things that you feel, but you choose to ignore them and make them invisible. The one quote from my mother, and for those that know me, I quote my mother and father an awful lot. My mother would call this the ostrich syndrome. And I'd, I'd be, you know, 10 years old at sitting at the kitchen table, and, and my mother would come home and tell us a story from work. She worked in the medical field about the ostrich syndrome. And basically, somebody has a pain, has an ache, feels a lump, something is going on with their health, and they stick their hand, head in the sand like an ostrich. So the ostrich syndrome. But think about it. Think about making visible the invisible. And the last thing I wanted to get to and expand upon before we get to Jackie DeAngelis and her her interview and story is a um, an article that was in the New York Times on the uh, I, I think it was April twenty first edition, and the title of this article and it really struck me that. It's an interesting article. Certain can certain foods really stave off dementia? Here's what the science says about whether your diet can counteract cognitive decline. So, what does this really mean? Can you by eating better reduce the risk of dementia? Plain and simple? And the answer would be yes. Absolutely. I totally believe it. I have believed this for 30 years. You are what you eat. Garbage in, garbage out. Think of it that way. Now, the way to look at this is that we, unfortunately, we all realize that we're not quite sure of the exact cause of Alzheimer's disease or other forms of dementia. There's currently there's no medicine that's going to reverse it. Okay? So we got this horrible disease. We're not quite certain what causes it and we really don't have anything that's going to help it. Okay. But, but here's the part to keep in mind. There is research that shows that people that have conditions like heart disease, high blood pressure, obesity, and diabetes, okay, you've heard me talk about this ad nauseum, are more likely than those without those four things to develop age-related cognitive decline, dementia. Now, there's other risk factors that fit into this, which include a poor diet and a lack of exercise. Now, if we just stop there, this all makes complete sense. And we have to look at what are the things that we could do to turn this around. So keep in mind, heart disease, high blood pressure, obesity, and diabetes. I see all of those things in the realm of fatty liver disease, the leading cause of chronic liver disease and the leading cause of cirrhosis and the leading cause of liver cancer, and pretty much the number one disease that leads to liver transplant. Ugh. Okay, this is my life. This is what I deal with. And again, poor diet leads to heart disease, high blood pressure, obesity, and diabetes. Lack of exercise only contributes to it further. And so let's look at a couple of diets that you're all pretty familiar with. Now, Mediterranean diet. Mediterranean diet is near and dear to me. I am of Sicilian extraction. Nothing can be more Mediterranean than the Sicilians and the Greeks and others. 
but I favor the Sicilians for right now. So the Mediterranean diet and a diet called the MIND diet, M-I-N-D. So what does MIND stand for? Mediterranean dash intervention for neurogenerative delay, neurodegenerative delay. Mediterranean, Mediterranean dash intervention for neurodegenerative delay. Now, the DASH diet is something that the American Heart Association designed a good 10, 15 years ago. And and we'll talk about that in a second as well. So these two diets, now they're very, very similar. They both encourage fresh produce, legumes, nuts, fish, whole grains, and olive oil. Now, scientifically, research, it has been shown to offer you strong protection against cognitive decline. And and, and this article, the New York Times article, quotes a number of studies, one published in 2017, analyzed the diets and cognitive performance of more than almost 60,000 older U.S. adults. And what they found is that those who most closely adhered to either Mediterranean or the MIND diet had a 30 to 35% lower risk of cognitive impairment than those who adhered to these diets less closely. Okay? The key thing here is anything that you do that's going to keep your arteries and your circulatory system healthy is going to reduce the risk of dementia. So what's good for your heart is good for your brain. I would also say what's good for your heart is good for your liver. What's good for your heart is good for your kidneys. And on and on it goes. This is all together. You can't look at any one of these organ systems in isolation. The other part is with regard to green leafy vegetables. You have to have a game plan to get these green leafy vegetables into your diet, full of nutrients, full of fiber, and really solid evidence based in research that links them with slower age-related cognitive decline. Here again, randomized controlled clinical trial out of Israel. And they took a brain scan of more than 200 people who had been split into three diet groups. And what they found is that after 18 months, those that followed a green Mediterranean diet, nutrient-packed green plants, green tea and walnuts, had the slowest rate of age-related brain atrophy. It works. It is neuroprotective. And isn't that what we want? Nobody wants to end up, sadly, in a nursing home, demented. And here you are, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years old. Hey, kick that diet into high gear. Of course, colorful fruits and vegetables, high in flavonoids, antioxidants, and the MIND diet specifically wants you to really beef up on berries. Again, good source of fiber, antioxidants, and having a cognitive benefit for you. Blueberries, strawberries are the way to go. Fish, omega-3 fatty acids. We cannot get omega-3 fatty acids from within our body. We have to get them from external sources. One fish that I have become addicted to, my wife does not want me to talk about this, it's sardines. I am eating at least three to four cans of sardines a week for lunch. 
outstanding food. But we need to get those omega-3 fatty acids found in cold water fish, fatty fish like salmon, into our diet. And then, of course, nuts, whole grains, legumes, olive oil. I sure hope you are familiar with the legumes you need to eat. Lentils. I love lentils. Lentil soup. I grew up on lentil soup. My grandfather taught us how to make it as as kids. And you want about three servings per week of, of legumes, at least. And then olive oil. What good Italian, Greek doesn't love olive oil? Okay? Now, there was one other thing that this article got into is, is dietary supplements. Okay, this should not be a shock to anybody But these dietary supplements that are advertised don't work. You've got to get it through your nutrition. And so just to wrap this up, and we'll get to the breast cancer interview. At the very beginning of this article with trying to keep your wits about you, preventing dementia and Alzheimer's, obesity, hypertension, heart disease, The vast majority of people that have these problems are related to a poor diet. You're probably not eating fresh fish four nights a week. You're going to McDonald's to get a fish sandwich. Garbage. You're probably not eating fresh vegetables, fresh fruits. You're probably not eating an appropriate portion size. Now, I'm not picking on people. I'm just telling the truth. There are some patterns, some habits that you see here of eating out, eating processed food, eating sweets, weight gain, hypertension, diabetes. Let's throw in fatty liver and cirrhosis, and it is going to cause a gradual decline in neurocognitive function. So the opposite of that is plant-based diet, have some food, stock up on the, the beans, the nuts, olive oil, olives. It's the way to go. So with that said, hopefully for those of you that have been writing to me and wanted a little bit more time with me, I hope this has um, provided you the information and insight. That's what we do. I consider myself a physician communicator trying to relay these stories and these articles and information to all of you so that it's actionable. That's what we do on the radio every week. We try to provide you with actionable information. So without further ado, let us get to Jackie DeAngelis and uh, the story of her breast cancer. I do appreciate her again giving us the time to share her story. And as always, if you have any questions, go to our website, drjoegalati.com, send me a message, and I will be in touch with you. All right? So thank you again. Be well, and we'll see you soon. Hi, Jackie. Joe Galati. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Well, welcome back, everybody. Thanks for tuning in today. If you are just tuning in, this is your health for first. Putting faith and health together for a better you. I'm Dr. Joe Galati. And we're on Sirius XM Channel 129, the Catholic Channel. To stay in touch with me, you can go to drjoegalati.com, sign up for our newsletter, and follow us along on social media. Now, a quote that I came across from Proverbs, it says, Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, and healing of the bones, and someone who 
is very gracious with their words is Jackie DeAngelis. She is a Fox Business Network correspondent. She is on Fox News Channel. She is now on Fox Nation. Jackie, you seem to be all over the channel these days. And thanks very much for coming on and telling us your story about the recent diagnosis of breast cancer. How, how are you today? Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really happy to report that I'm feeling well. Um, I had a tremendous team of doctors help me through this, and, you know, we can talk about um, the options and the kind of treatment that I chose, but um, I'm feeling really good. It's been nine months since my surgery, and it usually takes about a year to heal fully, um, but I'm definitely well on my way. You know, one one thing, whenever you hear somebody has breast cancer or they've been treated for breast cancer, it is always a great opportunity now to talk about the numbers, the number of women and men that get breast cancer. So roughly one in eight U.S. women will develop breast cancer, and that comes out to about 350,000 new cases a year. Unfortunately, there's close to 45,000 deaths each year. And you know, these are things that you just don't think about. And many times we have this sense of being um, uh, uh, impervious to these kinds of conditions. And it's always the other person that is going to get cancer or have a heart attack or develop some other kind of problem. But I, I would say, how did this all start? What were you doing, and how did this uh, all come to be back last year? Well, let me start by saying I never thought that it could happen to me. Right. Um, I'm extremely healthy all around. I, I've been an exerciser my entire life, low body fat. Um, I eat well. I really watch what I eat, the kinds of foods that I eat. Mm -hmm. I don't drink a lot of alcohol. I don't smoke, uh, no recreational drugs, nothing like that. Um, you know, I, I really thought that I was actually a, a pillar of health. Every time I'd go for my checkup, low blood pressure, you know, all the, the um, blood work was always in line, right. low cholesterol, everything was working for me. So this came as the biggest shock that you possibly could imagine. And essentially how it came on my radar was I turned 40 doctor said it's time to go for your first mammogram this wow. was, um, during the COVID period and um, the centers were closed for a long period of time so I would say probably I, I always listen to the doctors when they say go for this test or go for that screening so I probably was delayed by about six months um, because of uh, you know the coronavirus but I did go in for my screening as soon as I could and that night, um, they were going into the wee hours of the night to mm -hmm. try to get more people in. And, uh, you know, they asked me to stay behind after they finished the film. And a radiologist came in and she said, you know, I see something on here that looks suspicious. Wow. Um, she showed it to me. It was a cluster of cells. Mm -hmm. It looked kind of cloudy. Um, and she said, it's the kind of thing that could be just regular calcification, right. which every woman has in her breast and are benign, or it could be something more. And um, we're thinking that you need a biopsy. So, I mean, I just was oh, it's crushing. by this. Uh, yeah, as you can imagine, floored, shocked. I hadn't even told my family I was going for the mammogram because I didn't think anything was going to come of it. So the first thing that I did was go home, call my mother, um, who is just, you know, a good sounding board and very calm and rational in situations like this. And we both started researching, you know, where I wanted to be right. um, treated, where I wanted to have the biopsy. Um, and, and we started putting, you know, a plan into place. So we got a new team of doctors. They wanted to get some of their own films. I went back. Another radiologist looked. I also wanted, you know, a second opinion. Sure. Because... You don't want to just biopsy anything for no reason, uh -huh. whatever. So she said, she said, I understand why um, the first doctor thought it was suspicious. I, I think it looks a little suspicious, too, but it's so borderline. It's so, so borderline. I'm not going to rush you on a biopsy. Let's watch it for six months, wow. see what happens, and we'll go from there. 
so um, I did that. I put it out of my mind, came back for a checkup in another six months, and um, we did some more pictures, and she said this time, she said, you know, it's still very borderline, but it changed mm-hmm. in the size, in the shape. It looks different, and it's alarming. You know, we're going we're gonna to go forward with this biopsy. So at that point, two people saw the films. They're saying the same thing, um, and, you know, we moved forward with it. God, um, three days after the biopsy, I got a text message alert that said, you have new test results in your chart. (laughs) And um, I went into the chart and started reading the test results, and I couldn't understand them. So I started Googling things and Mm. started panicking. At this time, the radiologist must have gotten the results, too, and she called me, and she told me that I had stage 1 breast cancer. Wow. Wow. And, you, you know, it's it's shocking. Your first mammogram, you think you're doing the right thing, which you, you were doing the right thing, but you don't anticipate at about 40 years old, your first, your first rodeo, you've yeah. got cancer. Right. No, not at all. And the reason I wanted the second opinion um, was just because sometimes they say women that have dense breasts, women who have not had a mammogram before, right. you need extra pictures so that they can, you know, really understand what your situation looks mm-hmm, like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes they'll call you back. And so I was a little bit weary to just pull the trigger on the biopsy. But at the same time, I wasn't expecting to turn, you know, to, to have this kind of diagnosis turn up. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And I'll just add that there was no history of cancer in my family on either side. Um Later, we did gene testing, and I found out that I didn't have the BRCA gene. So one of my messages um, on Fox, as I've talked about this and and that I want to talk about today, is that, you know, it can happen to anybody. And it can happen at an early age. It can happen before you're 40. That's just when the recommended screenings start. And so when the doctor tells you it's time and if you have access to get a mammogram i highly recommend it cuz you never know well you know one of one of the other messages and this this is true the what really is the definition of a screening test the idea is when you do not have a lump that you could feel when you do not have mm-hmm. any of these skin changes and you could apply it to People that go for a colonoscopy, when I'm talking to patients about getting a colonoscopy, they will say, I feel fine. My bowels Mm -hmm. work well. And I'm like, well, you know, that's exactly when you screen. You don't want to come to me when you have blood in your stool and you're losing weight Mm -hmm. and you have abdominal pain. Same goes for screening mammogram, not when you have a lump the size of a walnut that right. you say, oh, now there's something wrong. You want, I mean, you are the the embodiment of screening early and really nipping it in the bud. Now, uh, let me just touch sure. on that because I think that's a really important point that you're making. Um, even my doctors looking at this and, and how much it changed over the course of six months, they could estimate how quickly this tumor was going to grow. Right. And they said this is not the kind of thing that you would have wanted to come in in two or three years from now. Um, Again, I had no signs, no pain, couldn't feel anything, nothing. Thought I was in perfect health. But the same tumor in two or three years, and and I know we're going to talk about my treatment, my options would have completely changed, and I would have been in a different category, right. and it would have been a more, much more dire situation. Right, right. And all that, all that ties to, unfortunately, it ties to survival and, and all of that. Now, just, just to take a break here, you, you had mentioned you exercise, you eat well, and you know, don't smoke, and uh, <laughs> no drugs. I mean, thank God for that. But anyway, d- question. Um, do you cook at home? Do you eat out? Um, do you do a little of both? Because so much, and we'll get into this a little later about things to do to prevent breast cancer, but there is such, uh, such a rush to eat out and so many Mm. people are eating out and that is, uh, very clearly tied to the obesity epidemic we're seeing. So where, where do you fit in? as far as eating out, cooking at home, uh, things like that? So I eat out a lot because I'm very busy, Dr. Glotti. Yes. I'm not a big cook, you know, and I don't have a lot of time for that. 
And to your point, because I'm thin and fit, um, I sort of feel like, oh, well, you know, I, I must be super healthy. Right. That's not always the case either. As much as I do eat out, I, you know, I'm not eating fast food. I'm right. eating at, you know, decent places, but you still don't know what's in your food. Right. And, um, and just because, you know, you're thin doesn't necessarily mean that you're always eating the best quality food. Uh-huh. I try to do the best I can when I'm ordering, um, you know, but I've made a lot of um, lifestyle changes, including my diet, as I've done more research on, um, you know, prevention and, and what I should be doing into the future, just thinking about other kinds of cancers and things that could happen. Um, and essentially, I've, I've modified what I'm eating. I, I've um, gone down the vegan road. Good, um, good. So I've cut out dairy. I've cut out animal products. I've cut out animal meat because um, the reading I've done suggests that, you know, these animals are treated with hormones mm-hmm. and my cancer with estrogen receptive. Right. And when you um, eat these products, you're, you're essentially ingesting those extra hormones, and, and that can definitely play a role. It, it does. And, you know, the one, uh, again, uh, the, a side note of a side note is a lot of people think, and a lot of people listening, think that, well, I'm not going to eat red meat, I'm going to eat chicken. Study after study, mm-hmm. probably in the last two to three years, that people that eat the most chicken are the most obese. And so chicken is not a get-out-of-jail ticket for you to say you're eating healthy. And um, similar to what you said, the plant-based diet is really, I, I think, going to be the uh, the winning the winning uh, strategy. Now you mentioned you're busy, and I would mm. I don't even know where to begin to think that how busy you are. But do you ever? I mean, what's going on inside your head when you're saying I'm busy, I'm busy, but I have to take care of myself? I'm sure you were thinking about this before the breast cancer, but in general, what is your philosophy and strategy? to put health, your health first, name of the program, um, on, on the front burner? How do, you, how do you negotiate all that? Well, um, once this happened to me, it, it changed everything with respect to my perspective on life. Um, and work, obviously, is, is a huge priority for me. I love what I do. I'm very passionate about it. Uh-huh. Um, but going through this experience physically and emotionally, and with my family, really started to make me realize what was important. And mm-hmm. while work is important, um, you know, taking care of yourself and longevity really is too. And so all of this has become much more of a priority than it was for me. And I make time. Um, I make sure I get enough sleep and rest. I make sure that I get my exercise every day. I make sure that there's time to go to the market to pick up the plant-based foods that right. we're talking about. And, you know, be able to bring things with me to lunch because that's part of the problem, the grab-and-go lifestyle. Also, in these cafeterias and whatnot, you know, there aren't always options of of the healthiest things to eat. And so I've made meal prep um, a priority and I've made sure that grocery shopping is a priority and that, um, you know, these things come first. Because at the end of the day, I can't do my job in a whole way if my health isn't, if my health is suffering. Exactly, exactly. Now, so there you are, uh, I'm sure when you're not out in the field um, doing a a segment and you're sitting in the proverbial, you know, sort of uh, office kitchen setup, is anybody looking over your shoulder to say, "Uh, Jackie, what the heck did you bring today? How did you do that? Have you been able to influence your peers at all? Um, a lot of friends have asked uh, about, you know, what it is that I'm doing. Some of the stuff I'll make myself. Some of them, um, there's some great vegan meal delivery services mm-hmm. online, too, that use organic products. And so I'll supplement with some of those for lunches and, and some of the grab-and-go stuff that I need. Um, people definitely have looked at me at work, for sure, and said, if this can happen to you, it can happen to, to anybody. Yes, and so yes. they've asked me about some of these changes. And um, even for me, I, I dropped, you know, maybe 
five or six pounds mm-hmm. after I went um, the plant-based way, and people were asking me about that. And um, so I've been able to use the opportunity to educate friends, family, colleagues um, about what I've been through. I had colleagues here who literally said they didn't think you could get breast cancer unless you had the BRCA gene. Right, And right. I'm not, you know, I mean... I think there are so many misconceptions and people don't know enough about cancer that, and I said to myself, if, if somebody thought that, then I'm, I bet there's other people out there who also think that. And right. so um, getting the word out there has been really important. Now, to switch to decision-making time, you have the diagnosis and you assemble your family and your you know sphere of influence, and the doctors and nurses and everybody on on the team how how is it that you came to the decision for the double mastectomy rather than a slightly lesser approach so the reason that um, I took my treatment from Cornell where I did the initial mammogram to NYU was mm-hmm. because when I was roughly 17, I had felt a lump in my breast. I didn't know what it was. Oh, wow. And I showed it to my mom. She um, took me to see uh, a doctor and um, checked me out. And they said, you know, this is totally normal. You have dense breasts. This is probably part of the menstrual cycle. If it doesn't go away in a week or two, you mm-hmm. know, call us back. But as suspected, it did. Never thought about it again. Never felt a lump like that again. And that doctor um, ended up being the surgeon who um, I worked with at NYU. Wow. And yeah, and when I walked in to see her, she um, she just took my hand and she said, "Wow, it's been a long time." And I said, "Yeah, it sure has." Um, and so my mom and I went to see her this time, and you know, she basically just sat us down in her office and described what the treatment options were. And she was very um, matter-of-fact, non-judgmental about it. Mm-hmm. She didn't want to influence me in any way. But she said, you could um, go the more traditional route of having a lumpectomy. Right. Um, but after the lumpectomy, we would have to follow up with radiation mm-hmm. and chemotherapy wow. as part of the treatment to make sure that we got you know everything. And after your surgery you'll continue um, to get mammograms every six months. A lot of surveillance, For the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In the other breast. And so that was option one. Option two was was a mastectomy, a single mastectomy. Mm -hmm. And she explained that, you know, if we did that um, and we're sure when the surgery was over, we'd be more sure that we eradicated the cancer, you have much less chance of anything spreading but that you still would have to go for mammograms in the second breast for the rest of, you know, the rest of your life every right. six months. Um, but the, you know, the, the upside of that was that there would be no radiation and no chemotherapy, again, because my type of cancer was very contained and because we caught it so early. Wow. So, I mean, literally on the spot, I looked at my mother and I said, I really am leaning towards the mastectomy. What do you think? And she said, I was thinking the same thing. And that was it. We basically had our treatment plan in place. And we sort of both just agreed that the more conservative approach was the better way to go and that there would be less treatment after, less worry after. You know, part of this brings such a dark cloud over your head and your life um, that it was just impossible to imagine living that way moving forward. So yeah, you you almost home, you know you almost become prisoner to the disease. Yeah, you really do. It yeah. just has this way of becoming so gripping. And once I went home and was digesting that again because I kind of made the decision on the spot, I called my mother and I said, "Well, listen, I'm thinking about this and if we're going to do one, then why wouldn't we do two? Right. It would reduce the chance of spreading and I wouldn't need the radiation from the mammograms every 6 months moving mm-hmm. forward." And from a practical standpoint, um, whether it's lumpectomy or mastectomy with reconstruction, um, you know, it's never going to match exactly and look 100%. You know, to me, it almost seems weird to have a reconstructed breast and a a natural breast look odd to me. Um, Obviously, that wasn't my first priority, Uh but um, I thought it would just be more, it would be safer from a medical standpoint and more consistent looking. Yeah. And she agreed. 
So I called the doctor the next day, and I told her, this is what I'm thinking. Is there anything wrong with that? And she said, absolutely not. It's not our practice to, you know, push somebody in that direction. But if that's how you feel, we can do that. Amazing. And you you went for the surgery, and now you're in that recovery, reconstruction phase of this all. When when can you say that will be done, finished? How, how long of a uh, haul is it? So I had my surgery on July 6th last year, uh-huh. and then um, I had the reconstruction on October 25th, and okay. I still am healing. I don't talk about it a lot, um, and I have found coping mechanisms and ways of just dealing with it. But mentally, you know, they sort of said it takes that year to be in a better place and Mm -hmm. I'm not there yet. So I, um, I'm just trying to be patient and give it time. It's still very uncomfortable and the reconstruction, you know, it, it takes time for that to kind of settle in and, and for your body to kind of adjust to it. Um, the nerves are all growing back. You can actually feel that. Right. um, I mean, it's such a process of, of regrowth and, and um, you know, with the reconstruction, I had a tissue expander in right. after the actual surgery because they take all the skin. The skin could have cancer in it. Um, they want new skin to grow. And so it's just, it's a process, doctor. Yeah. It's a, it is a process, and yeah. it's a long process. It's yeah. not easy. Now, with that and being on the Catholic Channel and talking about faith and Catholicism, and regardless of, of uh, one's religion, where did faith play a role in getting you through this, sort of the before, during, and after all of this? And it certainly is not over for you. Yes, the disease is gone. That is wonderful. But it's, it's the healing, and the healing can, you know, really, really leave its scar on, on individuals. So how would you sum up, Jackie, the faith aspect of this, and, and has it changed at all for you and your family and the people that are, are close to you? Absolutely. So the first thing I would say is I always had, you know, faith going into this, but I can't say that I dedicated that much of my time and attention to it. This um, definitely changed my relationship with God and how uh-huh. I view the world. And um, there were so many people, friends, family, colleagues who would say to me, we're praying for you. And I would just start crying, literally start crying, because one of the first things that my dad said to me, and he just recently passed about a month ago, Yes, he said, God is with you, and we are with you. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry. Oh, it's okay. This is, this is, you know, very real for you, Jackie, and nothing at all to be ashamed of. Um, and he basically said, and you know, we're all going to get through this together. And so many people prayed for me that I could actually feel like I, I felt it. And it made a huge difference. Um, and it's changed my relationship, how I look at faith, my relationship with God now, because I still think, um, you know, the ability to emotionally get through this Right. As well as physically, but be able to, to move forward and to be strong. Um, I feel like, you know, there's no other way to get through it other than to have a really strong faith and to believe that God is with you. It, it really is. And, and you mentioned, you know, your dad's passing. And when you look at the cumulative hits that we take uh, through life, many times, certainly with illness— the diagnosis, the struggle for the treatment options, you know, our own survival, you know, at 40, 41 years old, we're not supposed to be thinking about these things, right? And then right. on top of everything else, a big loss in your family, it's it's enough for you to lose your faith, to say, why is this happening to me? But um, I, you know, certainly know what you went through, and um, I, I mean, I and we've talked about it on this program. I lost my dad and mother-in-law the same day in January, and oh, so you, you have to say, and and we've talked to dozens and dozens of people, and they like, I've heard of losing parents or in-laws 
uh, the same year or within six or eight months, but the same day. Um, yeah. That wow. that is um, you know a quite quite a a stress test. So, um, you know, when you look at this with all that you've uh, gone through, and you mentioned it at the at the beginning, really, you're never prepared to handle this onslaught of of emotion. You think you yeah. are. I mean, we all think we're maybe just a little tougher than we think we are. We're successful and things, you know, through hard work you get there. But these are curveballs that you just never quite know where the ball's going to land. You really don't. And that's why um, when the first time somebody called me a breast cancer survivor, right. I just was like, you know what? <laughs> I really am. I understood what the term survivor meant. Um, look, I think God does make us strong. And so when yes. these difficult challenges are put in front of us, we do find a way to rise up to it and to the occasion. I never questioned whether it was with me or with my dad who coincidentally died of a malignant brain tumor. Uh-huh. Um, I never questioned why me, why me, why him, why my family, why right. now? Um, I didn't look at it that way. I just approached it as you know, actually, my mom put it in perspective for me. She said, it's always we think it's somebody else. Yeah. Why not you? What, what do you think that makes you different than anybody else? Really nothing. And so at the end of the day, um, this is the kind of stuff that a lot of people are dealing and my dealing with, and my family hadn't, hadn't dealt with it. And so in some ways, it was kind of like, um, I don't want to say like our turn, but, you know, right. it was our time to experience something like that. And her point basically was, why does it have to be somebody else and why not you? Nobody's insulated. And so I just looked at the challenges as um, problems, you know, problems to solve. And I was grateful in my case of the the early screening, being able to do something about it and know that your outcome is going to be positive and successful. You know, my my dad wasn't that lucky. Um, And so... There are a lot of lessons to be learned, I think, when you go through this kind of experience. And I have to tell you, I mean, kind of two years that I've had, I would turn around and say, (laughs) there's not much more anybody could do to me to, you know, that could hurt as much as this. Yeah. No, no, no. That that is true. It makes you tough, but, you know, you don't lose your gentleness over it. It's sort of an inner faith and inner um, resiliency to keep, just simply keep marching on and and doing what you do now uh, actually quite the contrary um to to being too tough i think it's i was tough to get through it but i actually think i've become more empathetic as a result of the experience you know one one question i was going to ask you is um how did you behave as being the patient right because that is a role that people can get into where you are you know, you have tubes and drains and you're not feeling well and, you know, asking for help to get up. How did that change you in any way? Or do you have a new perspective on people that are ill and going through any disease? And and it really does give you empathy in, in a sense. Yeah, it was a game-changing experience for me because I'm not used to asking people for help. Right, yes. (laughs) And this was the first time that not only did I have to ask people for help to help me physically do things, but I had to ask for a lot of emotional support. Yes. And I did ask for it, and my family and friends were amazing about it, but it wasn't something that was organic to me in terms of asking. And so it broke me down a little bit in that way to realize that it's okay to ask for help, whatever kind of help you need. Um, As far as being the patient, my brother took care of me. I went to stay at his home in the suburbs this summer. Yeah. Well, that's what brothers are for. Now, is he an older brother or a younger brother? He is an older brother, and we have we share the same birthday. We're three years apart. No kidding. He's older than I, I am, yeah. Very special. And we've always been very connected and very close, and so I went to stay with him. And um, I really was pretty incredible patient because um, I didn't complain. I did everything the doctors told me to do. He was telling me in retrospect as we were 
spending time reminiscing over my dad that he was really yes. amazed by my resiliency and, and how I handled it. Because sitting around, crying over things, feeling sorry for yourself, it's just not my way. Mm-hmm. And so I said, I'm going to listen to the doctors. I'm going to do everything they say. I want to heal as quickly as possible. And I was just so grateful to be alive and to tell have them tell me that, you know, the cancer had been... Um, you know, fully taken out of my body that, quite frankly, I I was just relieved. And so I just spent my time resting. Um, You know, literally, that was all I did for roughly two weeks. And after about two weeks, I was mobile. The drains were removed. I was still in a lot of pain, but I decided to go back to work to be able to take my mind off of everything. And back on the air right away? Yeah. Look at you. How about Um, that? That was my way of doing it. It yes. may not be for everybody, but it was a great distraction for me. And um, it helped me pour my mental en- energy into something other than cancer because it just takes so much out of you. It does. Um, and there is no painkiller that you could take orally <laughs> yeah. like the adrenaline of you know anchoring a show for an hour, for yes. example. When I would go on, I wasn't thinking about pain. I was so focused on what I was doing. And so... For me, it was a great thing. Wow. Now, you um, are lucky in that you have quite a megaphone to reach people. And that in itself is a gift that you have, especially when you're talking about health and wellness and and, uh, watching out for each other. But what do you say with regard to screening to the women that are listening Today on SiriusXM, that will hear this a week, a month, a year later on some sort of a replay, about the utter importance of getting screened for breast cancer. And we could probably lump in all the other routine screening that uh, men and women need to I would you know, do to that, get. exactly. So I would say this, um, you know, the best thing you can do for yourself and for your family is to be proactive about your health. Right. Doctors can only do so much, as you said, if you come to them and your condition is already at a later stage, right? So when you go to the doctor and they say, it's, you know, you've turned 40, um, it's time for a mammogram, or you've turned 45, it's time for your colonoscopy, right. you have to listen to them. Right. And you have to go even if you don't think that you're at risk for that particular disease, right. just because... You never really know what's going on under the surface. Yes. And in this country, we have the best technology. We have the best healthcare in the world. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, if you have access to that, you should absolutely take advantage of it and count yourself lucky. And, and I did that I had access to it um, to be able to find things early. Um, a colleague of mine just announced that he was treated for prostate cancer, right. and it was the same kind of situation. He found it early, right. and so his his prognosis and his situation is far better than it would be for somebody else. So I can't screen it enough, um, emphasize it enough. Even if it's you know go for your dental cleaning yes. every six months, whatever it is, if that's what's recommended, I, I urge people to do it and to take it seriously. Yeah. Now, do you find you mentioned uh, one colleague or friend that was a little sideways on the the BRCA gene and uh, little misinformation. But mm-hmm. um, what, what do you think you've learned about the misinformation that people have these sort of crazy ideas about what a risk factor is or isn't, and these people are either in um, a serious case of denial or they're just reading the wrong material? Yeah, they're just not properly informed, and I don't blame them. I've become a little bit of an expert on this because it happened to me, but I wasn't before, and I certainly didn't think that I was at risk, right? So was I reading the wrong things, or I just hadn't thought about it enough. I hadn't asked the right questions. I hadn't talked to the right people. And so, you know, I, I kind of don't blame people in a way for not necessarily knowing, especially if it isn't something that touched their lives, right? Because right? we, we look into things that particularly, you know, touch us in some way. Um, but I would say that I've used my platform to educate as much as I can, because if there's one person that listens to this or watched a broadcast where I talked about this and said, oh my God, it happened to her and she didn't think it was possible, right. 
it could happen to me. I hope it doesn't, but it could. Yeah. And so they go and get are proactive and get a screening. That to me is just that's a huge win. Yeah. And and dovetailed into screening is to alter some of these lifestyle risk factors. And and I see this with liver disease every single day. And while I feel as if I am um, uh, climbing a mountain barefoot, um, you know, all of us here, we just continue to help and educate and try to inspire. But for me, and these are general modifications that will help reduce the risk of breast cancer and heart disease and diabetes. It comes down to excessive alcohol use, your diet, and obesity. Uh, yeah. What What's... What's your take on all of that? And really, the, 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 the modifications that have a tremendous windfall of improvement. I think diet, exercise, taking care of yourself. I mentioned getting enough sleep. All of these things, managing your stress, they can all be factors in cancer, whether it's breast cancer or another type of cancer. Look, there are certain things that we're not going to be able to control. We can't control the air quality, the pollutants. Um, you know, some of the chemicals that are in products that we use, that kind of thing. Right, but right. we can be smarter about some of the choices that we do have control over. So I'll give you some examples. I made a list of things that I could do. Um, being, you know, vegan, caring more about what I was putting in my body right. um, was one. I started drinking a lot more water uh-huh. every day to cleanse my system. Um, I started to um, move away from products. For example, for so many years, I used the, the Keurig machine. I don't know if it is, is dangerous or not dangerous, but uh-huh. I didn't like the idea of the hot water traveling through the plastic like that, right. potentially into my drink. So, you know, I started thinking about things like this, and I wear a lot of makeup for my job. Uh-huh. I started using clean makeup products because there's not a lot of, you know, information about what they put in these products that we're using on our skin, which is very porous. Right. All kinds of things. I stopped with the diet sweeteners. Uh, yes. um, I cut back. I wasn't a big drinker, but I even cut back on the, the you know, alcohol that I did consume socially. Right. Um, and so I tried to take everything that was in my control and, and make those changes. And it, when you're in a situation where it's com- you feel out of control, that sometimes makes you feel a little bit better, like you're being proactive and mm-hmm. you're doing as much as you can. Outstanding. So, like every good interview, final thought. You've said a lot. You really have said a lot today. Your final parting message to everybody about breast cancer, health in general. What is Jackie DeAngelis's final word here? You've got to be proactive about your health. You've got to get screened. You've got to take advantage of all of the amazing tools that are in front of you if you're lucky and fortunate enough that they are. Um, and the second thing I would say is just emotional perspective. This really made me, um, the silver lining in it was the amazing love that I, and outreach that I experienced from friends and family and colleagues. And I realized how important those relationships are and how much they mean to me. And so I've taken a different approach. While work is very important, I, I really make sure that I make time for the important people in my life because you see with an event like this, you know, it just gives you a lot of perspective and it's life-changing um, in that way. So there's there's a sort of a practical component to it and also um, this more, you know, higher level sort of emotional component as well. Wonderful. Thanks for listening today to our podcast. Don't forget, for more information, check out drjoegalati.com. Information about my book, Eating Yourself Sick, is available there, as well as our clinical practice, radio program, and social media links. We need you to be part of our tribe and community. Until we meet again, I'm Dr. Joe Galati. Ciao.